Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for this wonderful chapter of Scripture that lies before us this evening, the, the chapter that so many have come to read and know so well, um, particularly the, the verses, Father, that are often top of mind when we're speaking to someone about the truth of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you, Father, for this monumental chapter of Scripture. And because we know it is special, Father, to so many, uh, we must imagine it was special for you as well, and uh, you have chosen to make it the centerpiece of so many presentations of the gospel. Uh, and that, for that reason, Father, I pray you, you wouldn't let me mess it up. I pray that you give me the, the right ideas, the right perspective, perhaps even something now that's different than what I've written down so that what we get out of this tonight is exactly what you intended and that we would uh, take away from it just some small part of the power that it, that it contains in revealing your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning tonight in chapter 3, John begins to relate a number of encounters between Jesus and various actors, men and women, that he is going to portray in the course of the gospel. People like a Pharisee or a harlot or a blind man and many others along the way. This will go on from now and well into the mid part of his gospel for quite a few chapters. Each person that we're going to see highlighted along this path, each one of them is touched by Christ's words, by his miracles, and at the end of it, they all come to faith in Christ. That's one of the unifying qualities of all of these people, all of these scenes. They're all individuals who come to faith in Christ. They begin each encounter in ignorance. They leave each encounter transformed by Christ. And between these encounters along the way, we're also going to see moments that John records in which various miracles are done and in which there are moments of dialogue between Jesus and three different groups who are following along. So these are different than the vignettes I just described. These three groups are first Jewish leaders and the crowds of people who come to see the miracles, the people who followed him around. Secondly, John records private conversations between Jesus and the disciples. And then thirdly, John invites us into these very private moments that Christ has with the father in discussions of prayer and otherwise with the father. John is selecting all of these moments, the the vignettes of these characters, these moments of dialogue and so on. He's carefully selected all of them to accomplish one purpose, to illustrate the nature of saving faith. John's gospel is all about explaining what salvation truly means. Each of these unique characters, for example, will show some aspect of what faith requires or how faith moves. In the case of the vignettes, you're looking at what faith looks like in an open, ready heart. How faith takes hold in the life of someone who is in the light. While the Jewish leaders and the crowds generally, they are an example of the response of darkness to the message of salvation. How does the unbeliever respond to the enlightenment of the gospel? And then thirdly, you have Jesus's disciples and you watch their struggle to understand the nature of his ministry and of their own salvation, which reflects upon the fact that spiritual immaturity is a common feature of all new believers, that it takes a while for us to understand what's actually happened to us already by the power of the spirit. And then lastly, when you look at Jesus's conversations with the father, we're going to see the magnitude of the love of the father for those he saves and the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. What was required, in other words, to deliver that salvation to us. So that's four broad areas that we're going to watch John lay out over and over again. He doesn't just do them all once. He keeps coming back to these things repeatedly. So we'll look at them all as we go through tonight. We're going to be looking at the first of those vignettes. So John's focus in writing his gospel is all about explaining the nature, the underlying importance of the salvation that we all have now through his work. He's explaining it through the eyes of those who encountered Jesus, both those who believed and those who rejected him. So he isn't simply retelling events. He's teaching us about the nature of the gospel. So let's begin in chapter three. We begin with an encounter tonight that illustrates one aspect of salvation. And that is perhaps the most important aspect. And this would explain why John starts here. It is the aspect of how we receive salvation, how it arrives. And what better figure to feature in a discussion of how one is saved than a Pharisee who in their day were the self-appointed religious leaders and teachers of Israel. This scene takes place in Jerusalem. You remember that Jesus has come down to Jerusalem for the Passover in chapter 2. And he has stayed there for a week to be a part of that celebration. And this scene happens before he leaves Jerusalem to return to the Galilee, where his home is. Beginning in John chapter 3, 
Verse one, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We're told at the end of chapter two that Jesus was performing many miracles in the city during the Passover week. If you notice right at the end of chapter two, you'll see the last verse. He said he did many miracles. And if you notice, it says also many believed in him. Now, without a doubt, some of those who would have witnessed these miracles happening and heard his teaching would have been the religious leaders of Israel who would have been present, certainly, in the city of Jerusalem for the week of Passover. And with all that Jesus was doing, miracles and the like, you can be certain that's going to catch people's attention, not the least of all the leaders. Those leaders of Israel would be principally Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Levites, or the members of the priesthood. They would have seen not only all that Jesus said and did, but they would have watched the crowds, and they would have seen what the crowds did in response. And certainly the crowds, as we're told, were believing, many of them anyway. And as they heard Jesus' teaching and they saw his miracles, the question comes, what did they think of what they saw? It's probably a safe assumption that the leaders were scoffing, many of them, perhaps even angry at what they were seeing, threatened by the prospect of someone new coming onto the scene with such power. But not all of them reacted in that way, as we're going to discover from Nicodemus. First, we hear Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, as I mentioned, a Pharisee is one of the religious leaders of Israel, but specifically Pharisee means a rabbi or teacher, the one who had the responsibility to teach the scriptures within Israel. Secondly, at the end of chapter three, verse one, we're told he is a ruler of the Jews. That is not a synonym for Pharisee. This would indicate that Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council over Israel, made up of 70 men, 70 Jewish men. Their rule had largely become subjected to the rule of Roman authority, but the Romans gave the Jews a certain degree of freedom to rule themselves within the confines of Roman law. And when it came to judging themselves according to their own religious law, they left that matter to the Sanhedrin. And this man, this Pharisee, was apparently a member of the ruling Sanhedrin. In fact, in later chapters in John's Gospel, this man gets mentioned twice more. There's two other points in John's Gospel when Nicodemus comes up again. And in those later moments, we're going to see him actually coming to Jesus' defense as a member of the Sanhedrin. So he is on the Sanhedrin. Knowing a little bit about what Pharisees did and how they taught and how they thought is very helpful to understanding what takes place in the rest of this chapter. First, Pharisees taught that every Jew was assured a place in the coming kingdom merely on the basis of their Jewishness. And when I say kingdom, you have to hear that as a synonym for what we today would say heaven. Entering the kingdom was their way of understanding the afterlife, of being saved, to put it in our terms. So the Pharisee taught, you will be saved because you're a Jew, and for no other reason and with no other requirement. Just by virtue of being an obedient child of Abraham, the Jew could be assured that they would be included in the kingdom. In fact, the Pharisees taught this very interesting perspective. They said that Abraham, literally the Abraham, sits guarding the gates of hell right now, and he intercepts and saves any Jew who might be consigned to that place. He turns them around at the gate and sends them back to heaven. You can see that thinking reflected in a lot of places in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 3, 7 through 9, It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, John the Baptist said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He's criticizing them for thinking they're safely getting to heaven just because they have their father, Abraham. And I love the way he opened that. He says, who warned you about the wrath to come? In other words, he's implying that they're subject to the wrath. They're subject to hell. And that's why they've come to him. Later in Romans 2, Paul makes a similar argument about Jews in general. In Romans 2.28, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul's attacking that same mentality, that some Jews, they thought they had no worry about salvation because they're Jew. All Jews are getting in automatically. We have a a get-out-of-hell-free card because we're Jewish. That's not how it worked. That was one thought they had. Secondly, the Pharisees were the conservative, law-abiding political party in Israel. Their chief rivals for power were the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were the liberal political party of their day, much like we have today. Like Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, we just changed the names, but it's Pharisee, Sadducee. Now, as it happened in the time Jesus came, 
The Sadducees were the political party in power at the time. They held a majority of seats on the Sanhedrin. Because they were the majority party, they were responsible for the temple and the operations on the Temple Mount. So the temple now, it's not just about the building, it's a source of power and income, a huge source of income. They ruled that. That was their source of influence in the culture, and it was their ticket to wealth and power. Well, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they had no ruling or financial interest in the temple, so they had to rely on a different base of power for their support. They obtained power over the people through their theology and through their teaching authority. Their power over the people came from teaching a really strict form of adherence to the law as a means of maintaining citizenship as a Jew. That's how they projected it. So from their teaching, they stressed that in order for a Jew to enter the kingdom, they had to be a Jew in good standing with the law. If a Jew didn't keep the works of the law according to the Pharisees' teaching and standards, then they were at risk of forfeiting their Jewish identity. So in other words, on that day they approached the gates of hell, Abraham wouldn't save them because they had lost their right to be called a Jew in that sense. So it was a works-based theology, and it ensured that the common Jew, if they were eager to enter heaven, that they would then come to the Pharisees and heed their teaching and pay homage to them and be one of their disciples. So to solidify their authority in this way, the Pharisees made a point of modeling this super scrupulous obedience to the law. And they did it in a very public way. They went to these ridiculous lengths to abide by the law and to make that a public display, to show their piety at all times to the world. You see examples of this in Scripture. Jesus comments on it at times. In Matthew 6, 5 through 6, Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about the Pharisees. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So their purpose in all of these public displays was to create the impression among the people that satisfying God's demands was nearly impossible for the common Jew and that the effort required to secure the kingdom was enormous. And therefore, few beyond the Pharisees themselves were going to have the capability of making the grade. But of course, these men being self-deceived, they didn't realize how far from righteousness they were, even in their own self-defined standards, right? Even in all these silly things they said everyone should do, they were far away from the truth. Jesus says in Matthew 5:20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Showing the folly of a works-based theology. But that's how Pharisees gained their power over the people. They portrayed themselves to the people as those who have the keys to the kingdom, the keys to heaven for the ordinary, hapless, helpless Jew. And if you wanted to get into heaven, you had to come through them. You had to understand what their requirements were, keep those requirements, satisfy those requirements, and then maybe they would put in a good word for you also. The average Jew would have seen the difficulty of following in their footsteps and would have said to themselves, I can't even compare myself to the Pharisee. How am I going to get into heaven? At which point they would come to the rabbi, to the Pharisee, and they would seek a solution. How is it that I'm going to enter the kingdom? And at that point, the Pharisee had them. At that point, the Pharisees would offer new burdens, new rules, new requirements, things they now had to adopt if they wanted to be judged worthy to enter the kingdom. And naturally, they expected reward from those people in return for their wisdom and for their counsel. And they made their money through those interactions. In fact, it got to the point where money could be a way of buying access into the kingdom. For if you were donating enough money to the needs of the Pharisees, then the Pharisees could say that was a righteous work that could then escort you into the kingdom. Have we heard this before? Have we not had indulgences and other things? I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Men have always come up with the same tricks to make religion into a money-making business and to do it at the expense of the people. That's what the Pharisees had become very good at doing. This is a scam as old as religion itself, and they played it better than perhaps anyone ever has. By exhibiting themselves as guardians of the gates of heaven, they gained both the praises and the wealth of men. Consider some of what Jesus says about them in Luke 16, 14 and 15. He says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And then once more in Matthew 23, 
Verse one, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And he goes on. He says they love the place of honor and so on. These are men who are all about feeding their flesh. And it should be obvious, they were not believers in the way we use the term. They were not ones who knew the living God by faith. They were unbelievers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. So with that background, let's look at the conversation that now emerges between Christ and this Pharisee, knowing what we know now about not only what a Pharisee is, but what would have been in this man's mind when the conversation turns to the kingdom. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the name Nicodemus literally means victory over people or victory for the people, you could say. I think that's ironic. In fact, it's prophetically ironic when you consider that Jesus delivers the victory for the common man over the tyranny of men like the Pharisees, who were obviously tying up those heavy burdens. He comes to Jesus, we're told, by night. And that tells us all by itself that he was probably hoping for a private moment, something that's out of the the sight of some of his contemporaries, the watchful eyes of fellow Pharisees. It suggests something about his heart, that his desire for secrecy may be the first indication that he is not your normal, ordinary Pharisee. His perspective might be going somewhere different than the average Pharisee. His interest in Jesus is very personal and presumably it's very sincere. There's something else about this I find really interesting. You know, when when John says he comes in darkness, it reminds us of John's metaphor for spiritual blindness. This is a man coming in darkness to speak to Christ. As he speaks, Nicodemus gives Jesus what sounds like respect here and consideration. Even he calls him rabbi and he confesses. We know you've come from God because of your signs and so on. Teacher is a respectful term. Rabbi is respectful, but it falls short of acknowledging him as Messiah. So again, though he's being respectful and he has a sincere interest, he hasn't reached the point where he knows who Christ is, at least not yet. And notice he says we, that use of the word we, it probably means all the Pharisees, perhaps even all of the Sanhedrin. So it would appear that some religious leaders like Nicodemus have concluded that Jesus is doing what he's doing, all these miracles, by the power of God. Because he says we have come to understand this. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Because the irony is that though the religious leaders could see the power of God at work in Jesus, they nevertheless reject him and reject his claims. As we said last week, that's one of the central themes in John's gospel. And that is trying to explain the response of the unbeliever to the gospel. The acceptance of the gospel is a matter of supernatural faith. It is not dependent on miracles and signs. Hearts in darkness will Reject the light of the gospel, even when it is accompanied by evidence of God. Jesus will revisit this point later in this chapter. So we're going to hold that thought for now. In response to Nicodemus's polite opening statement, notice what Jesus does. He abruptly jumps into the heart of the matter. He jumps into a conversation on how you enter the kingdom. Now, that is not something that Nicodemus has raised yet. But it appears very much so that that's what Nicodemus will be interested in as the conversation goes further, which tells us that Christ knew why he came. Here's a man who has positioned himself to the people as the one who knows how you enter heaven, how you enter the kingdom. And yet he has come in secrecy to ask Jesus that very same question. And Christ knew it. So before he could even ask, Jesus raises the point and he gives the answer. Jesus says to this man that the true way that a person enters the kingdom of God or we could say becomes saved is to be born again. That term born again, it long ago became part of the Christian lexicon. Most of us have heard it. I'm almost certain all of us have heard it at some point in time. We may not fully understand it. I remember when I was an unbeliever in a Catholic family and in the mindset of what Catholics understand. And I would hear a Protestant talk about being born again. I remember distinctly back in the 1970s, Jimmy Carter getting interviewed before he became president and talking about the fact that, yes, I am born again. I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I had no idea what he was talking about. It just seemed like like a wacko religious things that he was talking about. But the point is, I remember hearing it from the perspective of a man who knew nothing of the truth of the gospel, and it sounded strange. 
And I think it's important to put aside any of your familiarity, although I know that's impossible to a degree. But trying to put that aside is helpful to see it from the perspective of a man like Nicodemus for just a moment anyway. When Jesus is born again, what does he mean? It describes the moment when we receive a new living spirit, which is the moment of faith in Christ made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might assume, as I just mentioned, that this phrase would have been completely unknown to a Jew living in that day, to a man like Nicodemus, and that therefore Jesus's choice of words here would have been completely confusing to him as it was for me the first time I ever heard it. And to an extent, that's true. And that'll be evidenced by what Nicodemus says next in his response. But before we look at that, it's not the case that Nicodemus would have never heard the phrase born again. In fact, the Pharisees had contrived this elaborate theology of their own built on that term. They had an understanding in a very twisted sense of what being born again meant. So it was not an unfamiliar term to him. I want you to look at his response. We'll see this coming out. Verses four through eight. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is everyone who is born of the spirit. So Nicodemus's first question gives us some of this insight. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when he is old, born again, in other words? Now, he doesn't ask the question, how can someone be born again? That is really the question you ask if you've never heard the term before. He's a little more specific. He wants to know how it is you can be born again now that I've grown old, now that I've reached this point in my life. And that reflects Pharisaical teaching on being born again. Pharisees taught that there were six ways that a Jew was to be born again in the course of their normal life. Much like the Catholic teaching on sacraments, the Pharisees had taught that there were these six moments or toll gates points in time you're supposed to get through as a Jew that were important moments of spiritual transformation during your life. Not all men would experience all six moments, but progressing through them was a journey of spiritual advancement. And it was to your advantage for the kingdom that you would make your way through all of these toll gates. For example, when a Jewish boy has his bar mitzvah, that's being born again. In their parlance, they would say he had been born again spiritually. Or when he gets married, he's said to have been born again. Or when he becomes a rabbi, he's said to have been born again. Each of these instances, that term is used in pharisaical theology. The idea of it is that the life had begun new again. That there was in a new place, starting off on a new journey, distinct from what had come before it. Like sacraments sometimes are perceived in the Catholic religion. A chance for the work of that person, some accomplishment they have come to, will move them further on the journey closer to God. Nicodemus, here's Jesus telling him that he still lacks a necessary step of rebirth before he can have the kingdom of heaven. But to a Pharisee, this statement makes no sense at all, given their theology, because if there was ever someone who could be said to have met all of the born again requirements, it would have been a Pharisee. He would have gone through all of the rebirth toll gates that he had to in order to be at this point in his life. And now Jesus is saying, oh, there's one you missed. Nicodemus can't believe what he's hearing. And so he responds in in what I think is intentionally a bit of a mocking tone to Jesus. He says, well, how is it possible for me to go back and get in my mother's womb? It would seem to suggest he's implying, how can I start this whole life over again so that I can get to a toll gate that I missed? Nicodemus has done everything he knows he's supposed to. He can't imagine that there's any other rebirth possible except perhaps the literal form of being born again from your mother's womb. And we know that's impossible. So there must be no other way. What are you talking about? That's the thought that Jesus seizes upon. In his response to Nicodemus, look what Jesus says. He says, one must be born both of water and spirit if they're to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard some Christians really go off on the born of water piece and get in some crazy corners that just have no sense at all. Because you have to understand a little bit of Jewish thinking to get this correct, I guess. It is a Jewish expression. To be born of water is a euphemism for being born, period. To be born of a woman. It refers to the amniotic fluid that comes out at birth. So it's just a way of them describing being born physically. But then Jesus says, on the one hand, you have to be born physically, but you also have to be born spiritually. Now, that first part seems unnecessary for him to mention, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it self-evident? No one's getting into heaven unless they've been born into existence. Why do I have to list that even on the list of requirements? I think the reason is because he's responding to Nicodemus's mocking. 
Nicodemus has said, well, how can anybody come out of their mother's womb a second time? Well, Jesus seizes on that and says, well, you've got to come out at least once. That's true. But that's not the end of it. He says that birth, that physical fleshly birth is one kind, yes. But there is a spiritual kind that must follow. And both are necessary if you expect to enter the kingdom. And in the way Jesus phrases his response, you can clearly see these two births do not happen at the same time. They are not the same moment. If every physical birth automatically included a spiritual birth, then there'd be no reason to call them out separately. And yet he is here. He's emphasizing that there's a second kind of birth, one that comes after our physical birth, one that must happen. And if it doesn't happen, you're excluded from the kingdom of God. I love Jesus's choice of birth as a metaphor for this spiritual awakening, if you will, or this coming to salvation, because it teaches us about the manner of our salvation. Being born again is similar to being born the first time to being born physically. I want you to consider the process of physical birth for a minute to look at the parallels. For example, our physical birth is an event that happened to us because of a decision made by our parents. No one chooses to be born physically. And when the time comes for our physical birth, we're oblivious to the whole event. It just happens to us. We take our first breath. Maybe we have our first cry. But those are responses to being born. Those are not the means to being born. They didn't make us a baby. They're the consequence of being made a baby. And in the first weeks and months of our early life as a new baby, we lack the maturity to really appreciate what life is all about or that we are alive even, really. But in time, our awareness grows as we get older and as we mature, we come to understand who our parents are. We come to understand the significance of life and we become an adult. We gain maturity. That's the model that Jesus chose when he wanted to explain spiritual renewal. He chose the model of being born and he calls it being born spiritually. Think of the parallels. The birth that brought us into spiritual new life came by the will and the power of the father. When it happened, we were oblivious. Even after our new birth, we lacked the maturity to understand it properly. But over time, we gained in spiritual maturity as we're taught by God's word until we develop some capacity to appreciate that new life. It's interesting to me how often I'll hear conversations around the prospect that someone is an unbeliever because they have some very bad theology. They don't understand the end times very well. or They don't understand the Holy Spirit's ministry very well, or they may not even understand salvation very well. And so we begin to doubt whether they can be Christian or not. When you think like that, you're actually running against the model that Jesus presented for how you're born. You don't know anything the day after you become a believer. You didn't have to know anything to become one. It doesn't become a requirement to maintain your Christendom afterward. What you have in your head is a function of maturity and proper teaching. It's not the manner of salvation. It's the result of salvation. The manner, as Jesus depicts it, is by an outside entity, God the Father by his spirit, bringing us into the body of Christ such that we are born again spiritually. Now, that's the point Jesus is making to Nicodemus. And in contrast to pharisaical teaching that said men could affect their own rebirth through certain works, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. it only happens by God through his spirit. And he's hearing these words. Nicodemus is hearing this. And I believe he understands what Jesus is saying at some level. But yet he's amazed by it. He must have been asking himself, who's ever heard of such a thing? More than that, who's ever seen such a thing? I've never seen anything like this ever happen to someone. Have you ever seen a spiritual rebirth happening in front of you? I mean, if we see a physical one, we'll certainly remember it. But if you're telling me this is how it happens, Jesus, and if you're telling me that people are getting into heaven and that means they're going through this process, how come I'm not seeing it? How come it's not self-evident? How come this is the first time I've ever heard of it? Jesus says, well, don't be amazed, Nicodemus. Verse seven, do not be amazed. Verse eight, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Well, so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus is amazed at the prospect that the spirit of God is out among men every day, moving them, granting them rebirth. And yet that's been undetected up till this point by Israel's religious leaders. How can that be? And in pharisaical thinking, rebirth is a process of works, just like the sacraments of Catholic theology. So therefore, it must be tangible. It's got to be something men can see and understand. And Jesus just said it in a way that suggests it's happening all the time. But we know Jesus is speaking of something spiritual. He calls it a spiritual rebirth, which is something God the Spirit does for us. And if such rebirth is the only way to enter the kingdom, then we know it's happening. It had to have happened to Abraham. It had to happen to Moses. It's happening. 
And that's the problem Nicodemus is facing right now. So Jesus gives this parable and he says, look, this is not that hard to follow, Nicodemus. Let's compare the spirit's regenerative work to wind. Wind blows around you all the time and it does it as it will under God's direction. And you can't see it. You can't know where it's coming from. You can't see where it's going because it's invisible to the human eye. The only way you can sense it is by the force it exerts or the sound that it makes. Jesus uses sound as the example. He says, so it is for everyone who's born of the spirit. Friends, we know this from our own experience and probably from those we know around us who've come to faith. You cannot see the moment of spiritual rebirth. It is an invisible process. I can remember when I was standing in a church on Easter one Sunday, my daughter was seven standing next to me and the pastor did the end of sermon invitation. And I was very early in my own walk. I had only become a believer around that same time. And my daughter tugs on my hand and says, Daddy, I want to go down. I'm like, go to where? We're not done yet. We've got to wait for this to be over, honey. I can't go. We can't go yet. No, no, I want to go down front. I'm like, why do you want to go down front? I mean, I'm not even clued in at that point, right? And it became, with a few more minutes, seconds of conversation, I realized, oh, oh, you want to go down front? Okay, let's go down front. And if you think about the process, shouldn't I know this is about to happen? Shouldn't I see this coming? If anyone should have seen it coming, shouldn't it be the parent? No, no. I mean, you might. But even then, you're only seeing the evidence of it, no matter how it makes itself known. This is the moment God made it known for me through my daughter's choice to go down. Maybe that was the very moment he changed her heart, for all I know. Or maybe it happened a day earlier or a week earlier. We don't know. The point is, that's the sound of the wind, so to speak. That's the evidence of the work of the Spirit. We hear the resulting confessions of faith. We see water baptisms. We witness lives and lifestyles and priorities changing as sin is set aside and men and women choose to follow the Lord. We see the spiritual fruit of the Spirit working in the believer's life. Those are the ways in which we detect spiritual rebirth. And those things, by the way, don't preclude somebody's life turning the negative direction at some later point and hiding that fruit and putting themselves back in a position to follow the the flesh. We see that in our own life from day to day. We'll know what happens to other people, too. These these indicators don't change the underlying fundamental truth of whether there has been spiritual change or not. And our inability to detect it perfectly is immaterial to the ultimate outcome. If you have some concern for somebody that they do not truly know the Lord and you've thought that perhaps they have been fooling you for a while, well, let's just keep preaching the gospel to them, right? At the end of the day, we may not know it perfectly. And Nicodemus at this point is starting to get that idea himself. So he asks the question that every person should ask. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you don't accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, well, how do you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? But if you really want to get the sense of what he's asking, you have to know the words a little differently in Greek. What it means is, how do these things happen? He's asking, in other words, how can a person be born again by the Spirit? You've told me how it happens. Now I need to know how I get that. What set of circumstances lead to this wonderful outcome? What are the steps we have to take? Now, you can sense in that the works-based theology that's still at the root of all that they understand and all that they've ever taught. I've got to do something now, Jesus. How do I get that done? Well, it is the right question. It's the proper question for him to ask. In fact, this is the question every person, every person should ask. Every human being should be literally obsessed with finding out that answer for every day they live on earth. Everyone should ask, how do I reach heaven? There is no higher purpose in our earthly lives than to answer that question before we reach the day of our death. And as Christians, I know we often lament the fact that there are so many people we know who, when they do ask that question, they latch on to the wrong answer. They fall victim for the lies of the enemy, for the false religions of the world. And we wish we could bring them the truth in a way that pulls them out from the enemy's lies. But friends, we should just as much lament the fact that there are so few people who even ask that question at all, who give any thought at all to what comes after this life. Nicodemus asked it. He looks at Jesus and he says to Jesus, how do these things happen? And now it's Jesus's turn to be amazed. Jesus asks, wait a minute, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know how to tell people how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is there no more basic question to answer in all religion than how do I escape death and reach the next life, heaven as we call it? And yet here's a man who is supposedly leading others in Israel to the answer to that question. And he comes in night to ask Jesus the very same question. 
You need no further evidence of how far Israel had fallen from understanding their own scriptures than to hear this man's own testimony on that night. And you shouldn't be surprised, by the way, to discover that there are yet still teachers who are sometimes ignorant of the very material they are proposing to teach their own students. They claim to know how to find God, but they themselves are far from God in many cases. The Pharisees are just one more group in a long line of wolves in sheep's clothing, and those people still operate in the church today. Safe rule is don't ever assume that because someone is a pastor or an elder or a Bible teacher that they have the right answers to these central questions of faith. In fact, don't be too quick to assume that they even know the Lord themselves. Instead, you should look for the evidence of the spirit in their lives. As Jesus said in Matthew 7:15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Well, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He's asking us to be discerning, looking at the lives of those who we would turn to for teaching. Then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus explains to Nicodemus why he is in this predicament of ignorance. How did you get to this point, Nicodemus? And he says, we have spoken of what we know. And what we have seen, and yet you don't accept our testimony. That's the problem. Now, of course, we're immediately asking ourselves, who's we? It's not the royal we, is it? I mean, he means it in the literal sense, and he does. Some have conjectured that it's a reference to the Trinity, as in Christ and the Spirit have co-testified to these truths. Certainly, that's not a wrong thing to say, but I don't think that's what he means. I think he's referring to himself and Moses. Because of what comes next in the narrative, Jesus is referencing the teaching of Moses, that is, the Torah, The very thing that the Pharisees had memorized and studied to no end and had set themselves up as experts in for the needs of the people. The Old Testament and principally the law. Moses, if you remember in the law, he taught the way of salvation. Even as early as Deuteronomy, he talked about a coming prophet and about the need that you do not have to have someone go up to heaven in order to obtain salvation or go across the sea to find it for you. For it is near to you. It is in your mouth. It is the word of faith. And Paul echoes that teaching when he teaches on it in Romans. So Moses had taught in the scriptures how you reach the kingdom of heaven through faith in the Messiah to come. And Moses had testified of what he had seen in what God had done in the tabernacle and elsewhere in the delivery of the law. And yet the Pharisees had not believed what had been given to them in the word of God. They had all they needed. They had never taken it and understood it properly. They just memorized it and then distorted it. And of course, the words that Moses gave were, in fact, the words of Christ, because the word is Christ. He gave those words to Moses. So Jesus asked him, look, if you're not willing to accept the words and the signs that have been given already on earth, that is through the word of God, then why would you expect me to give you greater revelation now? What more could I say that would impress upon you the truth? Because if you're willing to look past the word of God for the answers about who God is and how you can reach heaven, which has been given to you just for the reason that you would have those answers, then why do you expect God to give you a second opportunity in another way? That's what he was asking for. Nicodemus is asking for divine, special revelation concerning how to enter heaven. And that's always been the way it is with people, friends. That's how it's today. That's how it's always been. Men are always seeking something special and unique revealed just to them. I know you have the Bible and it says what you want it to say for you, but I had something even better. I had some special thing come to me in a dream or I had some special person tell me this and I seized on that and that's now my source of knowledge and truth. As Paul said, Jews seek for a sign and Greeks seek for wisdom. But God has hidden the message of salvation in plain sight, one that is foolish to the natural ear, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Think about it. It sounds awfully crazy to hear that the way into heaven is by placing your trust in a convicted criminal who was executed 2000 years ago. That's your solution to heaven. It's designed to sound foolish. And Nicodemus is stumbling in the very same way that men stumble today. He's overlooking what had been provided while seeking for something greater to so the question. How can these things happen? How can you be born again? Jesus gives him the answer anyway, gives Nicodemus the answer anyway. And what follows in chapter three at this point includes what is easily the best known verse of the New Testament, John 3:16. And as eloquent as it is at expressing the essence of the gospel, I want to ask you to consider the whole of his answer and avoid focusing on that one verse just because I think it is so familiar. It tends to dull our thinking of our attention to some of what's being said around it. It's certainly not to diminish its value. I'm just saying it's part of a larger narrative. Let's look at the whole 
of his answers. John 3.13 to 3.21. This is to the question, how can you be born again? Jesus begins, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, well, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For whoever does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So in answer to Nicodemus's questions, what Jesus does is give a two part answer. The two parts together explain how you reach heaven. And both of these parts of the process are the product of God's work. And let's look at that in detail. The first step, he says in verses 13, is the step of the son of man descending from heaven. Christ's descent from heaven is according to Jesus now, a fulfillment of what Moses demonstrated in Numbers chapter 21. That's the chapter in which you see the serpent, the bronze serpent, cast and stood on the end of a pole and lifted up for the people of Israel to see. When Israel was in the desert in chapter 21 of of Numbers, they've been routinely demonstrating unbelief in God's word. And at a point in time, because of their unbelief, there comes this time in Numbers 21 when God brings, the Lord brings judgment upon them for their unbelief. And he does it in a very unique way. He brings a bunch of serpents into the camp. And these serpents have the power to kill people through their bite. And people are dying all around. At that point, there's pandemonium and panic. And it's like Ebola, I guess. People are just not sure what's going to come next and how you avoid it. And God makes a measure of mercy available to the people of Israel. He tells Moses, I want you to take this bronze serpent. I want you to put it up on this pole, hold it up high, walk around the camp of Israel. And anyone who would look up at it, doing so in faith, in other words, in the expectation that God will reward their confidence in him, would be granted escape from the death of these serpents. Those Israelites who had sinned in unbelief and were unwilling to look upon the serpent were going to die from the snake. He did as God instructed. Some of them looked. Those who looked did not die. And those who failed to look did die. Now Jesus is explaining that that moment in Numbers 21 was a carefully constructed picture by God of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the sins of men. And a lot of people get bothered by the concept that a serpent was the image that was used in this case. But it's very purposeful. First of all, the metal bronze in Scripture always represents judgment. Bronze is a metal that always represents judgment in Scripture. You often see Jesus with feet of bronze when you see him depicted that way. That's the idea of his feet trampling out judgment. The serpent represents the power of the enemy. It does represent Satan, but it represents him in the sense that Satan is the cause of death to men. It's the sin that Satan instigated from his temptations in the garden. And the raising up of the serpent of bronze symbolizes Christ taking the judgment for men, the judgment that's required by what the serpent did in the garden and what men did in response to it. In other words, Jesus taking our place, standing in our place, being raised up on that wooden pole as on a cross and taking our judgment. This is the first step, Jesus says, of being born again and entering the kingdom. Unless and until the Lord descended and took this penalty upon himself, there was no solution possible for salvation. There was nothing you and I could do to enter into heaven unless and until this act happened. He's already referring to his death on the cross three years before it's going to happen. There's just no doubt that his purpose in coming was to eventually arrive at at the cross. So that's first step. Second step, the person must believe in Jesus's death on that pole. Faith in this sacrifice is a requirement. For salvation, knowing who to look upon, just as people in Israel had to look upon the pole with the serpent. So must we look upon Jesus's death on the cross with confidence that it satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Messiah will have eternal life. Belief means belief that his death saves you from judgment. 
Just as the people in the desert had to look upon the servant and express with that look their belief in God's promise to spare them, we look upon the cross in that same sense. I am confident that when I die, I will not see judgment for my sin because I believe that that moment on the cross 2,000 years ago satisfied the wrath of God concerning my sin. And if I'm wrong, and I'm not, but if it were that I were wrong, I have no plan B. I have no backup. I am not saying it is Jesus plus some other things I do just in case Jesus can't come through for me. Because then there's no faith at all in that statement, is there? There's no confidence at all. And that need for confidence is at the heart of the gospel. Now, at that point, we've reached John 3.15, where he has now given us the two parts to what is required. Now, having summarized the two parts up to that point, he then is going to amplify each of those parts in more detail in verses 16 through 18. So we're saying the same things again. Now, Jesus is just explaining it in more detail. In verse 16, Jesus says the plan of salvation began with the love of God. The word love here is agape. It means a self-sacrificial love. It's not romantic love. It's not eros. It's talking about giving your life for another. Remember, Jesus said there is no greater evidence of love than that a person would lay his life down for a friend. That is the definition of godly love. Self-sacrificial. And what God did voluntarily in the person of Christ was to demonstrate his love by laying down his own life. For those he saved. Don't forget, Jesus didn't participate in this plan against his will. The son and the father determined together to accomplish this plan from the foundations of the earth. And since Jesus was the creator, which we learned in chapter one, then think about that for a minute. We're saying Jesus created the world knowing he would have to die to save it. He went through the plan of creation, fully understanding where it was leading. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, he made it all. Then we made it go wrong. And then he had to come to our rescue. He knew where he was going before it got made. That's the purest definition of love. God's love for the world drove the plan of salvation. Now, I want to talk about the word world for a moment. The word world often gets misunderstood here. It's the word cosmos in Greek, which refers to the creation, to the universe, to all that was made. It is not a specific reference to the population on the earth, to people, although, of course, it includes humanity. But it is a broader term than that. The full sense is that God so loved his creation that he was willing to send his son to die to redeem it from sin. It's not just the people who are being redeemed by Christ's death. It's also the physical creation. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1, 1, 19 and 20. He says, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Everything that needs redeeming was done through Christ, not just the humanity that fell, for also the earth is under the same curse. So his payment on the cross was to redeem the creation from Satan, from sin, and from the curse. It's important to understand John is not saying that God so loved mankind that he sent his son to die for mankind. For that would imply that all mankind were covered by the death of Christ. And then it would make God unjust if he should send any of them to hell. For he could not punish them twice, once with Christ and once on their own. That cannot be the meaning. Self-evidently, not all mankind is being saved. So therefore, not all mankind has been redeemed, which is, by the definition of John 3.16, the evidence of God's love. That fact alone means we cannot interpret the word world to mean all people. We must understand it according to its literal meaning, which is as a reference to creation generally. But then... For that sacrifice of love to be effective, as he said, you have to place your belief in Christ as Savior. At the moment of belief in the Messiah, that sacrifice becomes effective in that person's life. They believe they receive eternal life. That's the second part to Nicodemus's question. What must happen for a man to be born again? Well, the Redeemer must be lifted up on a pole to take the penalty for our sin. And a person must believe in that sacrifice so that they can be covered by it, be covered by that provision. And then in verses 17 and 18, John 3:16 is so well known, but 17 and 18, not so much. Look in 17 and 18. Jesus comments on each of these steps in more detail. Look what he says in verse 17. He's commenting on the first step that God had to send his son. In verse 17, he says the son's arrival on earth was not to bring judgment against sin, but rather he came expressly for the purpose to die for the sins of the world. And through that death, then the world would be saved through him. He reminds us, by the way, that God could have had a different plan 
in response to the sin of mankind, right? Instead of sending Jesus to die for our sins, Father could have sent him to judge us from the very first day. That was an option. He didn't do that. That's mercy. Sin demands judgment. And his judgment would have been a justified and warranted response from the day that sin entered the world. But he has been long-suffering and patient, not wishing those he's going to save to perish. And he brings that process to its conclusion in his proper timing. So instead, he sends him on a mission to take the penalty on our behalf. It was a mission of mercy and grace. But friends, let's not be ignorant. I know you already know this, but the Bible does record a second coming. And in that second coming, he comes under a different mission. And that mission is one of judgment. The mercy mission having been accomplished, now all that it remains is for the second mission, the second coming, to be one of judgment. And that's depicted in Revelation 19 and 20. So, verse 17 tells us why the Father undertook this mission of sending the Son to come. It was to bring salvation. Now look at his commentary on verse 18. Now, verse 18 is commentary on the second part. Remember, the second part is on believing and accepting the provision of the gospel. Jesus says, those who believe are not judged. Well, he's confirming, first, that there is a judgment. The fact that he didn't come to judge his first coming doesn't mean there won't be one. There is a judgment. But when you place your trust in Christ, you essentially change your future. You will not be subject to that coming judgment for sin because your judgment fell upon Christ. Even though that judgment day lies in the future, for you it's been effectively canceled. You won't even be there to experience it. And then Jesus says that for the one who has not believed... He says his judgment has already happened because he's rejected the only solution. What Jesus is saying is there is no second option. He's saying once you reject the son of God, you assure yourself a seat at that coming judgment moment. And when it comes, that judgment will be certain and it will be final. And so in that sense, he's saying you've been judged already. You've rejected the only option I have for you. And in so doing, you've set yourself on a course where one day, Without any doubt at all, you're going to find yourself at the judgment moment, the second coming, and it won't be good for you. But then Jesus goes further to explain how that judgment came to men. In verses 19, he says, when the light came into the world, now light refers to Christ. We know that from chapter one. When the light came into the world, it revealed who was judged and who was not. Those who love the darkness rather than loving Christ are the ones who are judged already. They rejected the light, Jesus says, because they loved evil and didn't want their evil deeds exposed by the light of the truth. This is the common experience of unbelievers prior to coming to faith. Before they know the Lord in faith, in truth, they live in immorality and in sin to some level. For that's all they know. I had a pastor once tell me, why are we surprised when we see sinners sinning? That's what they do. Sinners sin. That's why we call them that. It's natural. Some are murderers. Some just cheat on their taxes. Some beat their wives. Some just lie to their wives. Some are horrendous people. Some look like nice people. But in their hearts, they're sinning all the same. And these people only know how to do that. And we still sin as believers. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying as an unbeliever, there's no option but to sin. That's who they are. And the prospect of approaching the God who judges you while holding on to all of that sin, has no appeal to the unbeliever because they know instinctively that in coming into the light, so to speak, it exposes their sin, their evil deeds. And Jesus says at the beginning of verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. I mean, you only have to look at a four-year-old to see this principle at work in the human heart, right? You've got a four-year-old, right? And you haven't heard anything in about 20 minutes. Uh Uh-oh. If they're silent for that long, something's wrong. Right, The crayons are out and the walls all been colored. The point is, the heart knows instinctively, unconsciously, that as sin takes place, as we live in sin, we're susceptible to judgment somewhere in our life, whether to a parent or to God. Ultimately, it's there. It may be something we repress and we choose not to listen to. But Jesus is saying the instinctive nature of sin in our flesh is such that when we are offered the chance to come, quote, into the light, to come to God, our nature is to say no to that because the light will expose our deeds. Why do you think Adam and woman hid in the garden when they heard the Lord approaching? Why did the Lord make noise so that they would know he was coming? So they would hide because exposure to him under those circumstances is instant judgment. He was giving them the mercy of chances to hide. This raises a really troubling question. What causes any man or woman who is in unbelief, which is where we all start, to ever make a trip into the light? Paul says, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. 
So if we all have evil in our hearts to start with, we all are without righteousness, Paul says. So why do some choose the light instead of preferring the darkness? That's the question that's being raised by Jesus's commentary on this process. Remember, I said that both parts of the plan of salvation are steps done by God. We know the first one is clearly by God. He came down in the form of man to take our sins. That much we get. But friends, the part in which we have accepted that sacrifice is also a work done by God. And now Jesus explains how God is responsible to do both the work on the cross, but also the work of belief in our hearts. In verse 21, Jesus says, it is the one who practices truth who comes to the light. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, someone who practices the truth in John's vocabulary refers to someone whose heart has already been brought into agreement with the gospel, with the truth. John commonly speaks of those who practice righteousness and those who practice unrighteousness. He does that a lot in his first letter, First John. And he uses those terms as synonyms for believers and unbelievers. Just listen to a, a couple of quick verses. First John 1 John 1.6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with Christ and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Or 1 John 2, 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And lastly, 1 John 3, 10, he says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see how he's using these terms interchangeably. So the one who practices the truth, this is the same author, John, the one who practices the truth is someone who is righteous by faith. And the word practice there reflects the fact that we're not saying you are perfect. We're saying that it is the desire of your heart to please the Lord by living according to his commandments within the limits of what we can achieve in our flesh. That person, Jesus says, comes to the light. Now, doesn't that sound backwards? Wouldn't we expect him to say the one who comes to the light is the one who will practice the truth? He doesn't say that. He says the one who practices the truth is the one who comes to the light. It makes sense. If someone's going to walk into the light, they have to already have nothing to fear from it. If they're going to come into the light, the exposure that that requires, they must have no concern over the guilt of their sin. Their sins would have to have already been forgiven, or at least their sense of that jeopardy has been taken away so that they have no reason not to. The light is no longer a threat. And Jesus is reflecting that in the order of these statements. He's established a conundrum which he solved. He said that those who are in the darkness always avoid the light because of the exposure it creates. But then he says the salvation that God offers through spiritual rebirth requires that you come into the light. And then he solves that in verse 21. He says, well, the people are being brought into the light by the power of God. Notice Jesus says at the end of that verse, maybe the most important part. He says they are brought into the light so that the deeds of this person can be seen to be wrought by God. The word wrought, I don't know why that word is being used. I mean, it's an easier word to use. That word wrought simply means accomplished, accomplished by God. The work to bring a person into the light so that they would believe and be saved is a work done by God. So not only does God descend from heaven to die in our place and take the penalty for our sin. He is also the one who transforms us spiritually by his spirit. And through that transformation, we are then able to come into the light. And that entire process is accomplished by God on our behalf. That is the true definition of grace. Now you can see why he used the metaphor of birth. No one chose to be born physically. And according to scripture, you're not capable of choosing to be born spiritually. You arrive at your rebirth by the power of God. And then we grow in maturity to even understand what has happened to us. And those steps of growth and of response include confessions of faith that accompany the belief that's been given us in our heart and the baptism that we take as a step of obedience to Christ and on and on and on. That's how Jesus ends his discussion with Nicodemus. So let's summarize it. We learned about the manner of our salvation, a process of spiritual rebirth, not of human works, accomplished in the heart by the invisible work of the spirit, bringing men into a walk of truth so that they can come into the light. And in the light, they come to believe in Messiah's death on their behalf, just as Moses prophesied a provision that said that God would provide someone who would be lifted up and that our belief in that sacrifice would be the manner of our salvation. And this Pharisee believed in this provision on this day, having heard it explained. We don't see the response 
But we see the evidence of it in later chapters. Here's a man who is teaching men the wrong way to enter the kingdom. And on this day, he came to understand it for the first time, truly, by the power of the spirit. Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, the gospel. And thank you for the story of Nicodemus and the, the way it shows us your power, your work, all that you accomplished on our behalf. Never let us rob you of the glory, Father, of the work of salvation. Let us hold it up high and announce it to the world in its proper way. That you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son so that all who might believe in him would be saved. None would perish, Father, and you did that so that you could bring men and women to know you truly. And we praise you for that, Father. And thank you for this study, as always, for the chance to understand these things in a new and better way. And lead us out of here, Father, with a renewed commitment to share what we know with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.